Welcome to FO Podcasts. With me today is a business leader who worked for the Tatas. Hoshang Bilimoria is an articulate, experienced, seasoned old Tata hand. And with him, we'll be discussing the glory years of the Tata Empire and the way Indian business used to be. Welcome, Hoshang. Thank you. All right. So, Hoshang, um, you came back uh, from England and you were a chartered accountant and you were working uh, in a chartered um, accountancy firm and you miraculously ended up in the Tatas. What's the story there? Well, uh, I qualified in England with a firm called Winnie Murray, which is now better known as Ernst & Young, and came back to India and joined their correspondence called S.P. Bellamoria, no relations. And I was a partner there for, well, uh, nine years. Uh, the profession at that time in India was very different. It was extremely poorly paid. Audit firms were identified with particular groups. And audit standards were nowhere near what we saw in the West. And uh, most audit firms also were not uh, handsomely rewarded. Taxation work was there, but... Um, Individual and corporate taxation was also not handsomely rewarded as it is today. Well, it was a socialist country, lest we forget, at that time. Absolutely. And, and of course, uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, our first prime minister, was greatly inspired by the Soviet model. And he thought profit was a dirty word. If I remember correctly, he said so once. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that time, none of the international firms were in India. so. The idea of uh, uh, modern techniques percolating through had still not entered uh, the realm of most of the firms in existence. I just happened to be at a dinner hosted by a leading doctor in Bombay, and I met the chief executive of Tata Sons there quite by accident. You mean Chandrasekhar? No, at that time it was Mr. Meenal. Ah, okay. You mean uh, we are talking about back in the day when yes, you were a I'm partner. I'm talking of 1987. Aha. And uh, we had a small chat, and I was very surprised that the next week I got a call and he asked me to come and see him. And who was this gentleman? He was uh, Meenu Modi, uh, who used to be a senior partner in Ferguson and Company Chartered Accountants and who had made his way into Tata's. And uh, when I actually met him, he was the CEO of Tata Sons. So one thing led to another, and he asked me to join the Tata group. Um, I was very interested in being in general management rather than being stuck in a very limiting audit world. And therefore, welcomed the idea that he put forward. I met a number of directors in Tata Sons, uh, ranging from Nani Palkiwala, Darbari Seth, Shahrukh Sabawala, Jamshed Baba, Sunawala, and of course, uh, Mr. Jayadi Tata, who was 
and simply magnetic personality. In fact, uh, I still treasure the time that I spent with him. Unfortunately, I got to know him in the latter part of his career. But uh, the first thing that happened when you meet him is how humble he was, how he put you at ease, and he just oozed charisma. You know, he sort of enthused you to give your best to him. And that is a quality which is not very common, I may say, amongst business leaders. Or the, any leaders, actually. That's, yes, of that course. That's a very yeah, rare political quality. Political leaders as well. Yes, <laughs> I agree with you. The only other person I can think of, uh, much younger than GRD, of course, who is uh, that sort of humility, graciousness, and who has also let grass grow under his feet, is Deepak Parekh. You know, he was just into, retired from, that's right. from HDFC. He walked into HDFC, yes, courtesy his uncle, but he took the job with a huge challenge. And what he has created today is absolutely stunning. Nobody else in this period has done what he has done. Uh, you've got HDFC, you've got HDFC Bank. You've got the two insurance companies, you've got the mutual fund and several other companies. So he's created a virtual empire. And as a professional manager, Deepak should be standing head and shoulders above the rest. I don't think he's been given his due uh, in India as a professional manager. Now, let's go back to JRD. Yes. And you said he had the ability to let grass grow under his feet. And walk us through that. Tell us what that really means. Well, uh, what he did, he had a knack for identifying, supporting talent. And he created outstanding entrepreneurs out of those people. And I can name just three. You've got Rusi uh, Modi of Tata Steel. Then you've got Darbari Seth of Tata Chemicals and Tata Tea, and uh, Ajit Kerker of Indian Hotels. And each one of them performed magnificently for the Tata group during their reign. Now, each one of them was uh, a completely different character, um, and you knew them. And you were telling, uh, for instance, a Rusi Modi story about, about uh, uh, him uh, remembering a particular driver. So why don't you paint a picture of each of the three? What made each of the three special? See, let's take Rusi Modi first. I used to meet him when he used to come to Bombay House once a month or so. His Mercedes car used to be parked on the west side of Bombay House. Uh, one day when he arrived, he saw a new driver who he didn't recognize. So he asked him, he said, who are you? He happened to be my driver. And he said, uh, sir, I am Henry D'Souza. He said, uh, you're new here? He said, yes. He said, who are you working for? So he said, I'm working for Mr. Billimori Saab, who's also new, and he's on the fourth floor. So 
Good luck, Henry, said uh, Rusi Noni. And Henry reported this to me. Three months later or so, three or four months later, uh, Rusi Noni was again in Bombay and he saw Henry next to the elevator. He went up to him, slammed him on his back and said, Hi, Henry. And Henry was in seventh heaven. He said, oh, Rusi Modi Saab, what a wonderful man he is. And that was his magnetic touch. In HR, very few could beat him. And uh, which is why, of course, Tata Steel prospered under him. You know, located in Bihar, Tata Steel had its own challenges. It was in Jamshedpur at the time. Right, yeah. And this was a time of a strong labor unions and uh, managing the political environment and the daily functioning of the steel mills wasn't easy. Yes, he so, all those challenges yeah. with great aplomb, you know. Yeah, so what he did was truly remarkable. By the way, the background uh, noise you, you, you might be hearing on this podcast is a storm which is hitting Mumbai. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are sitting in uh, Hoshan's lovely flat with Chinese vases, mm -hmm. nice porcelain, and... Um, great armchairs, but there's nothing we can do to control nature. The monsoon is hitting Mumbai in full force. Well, to continue, uh, we move on to Mr. Darbari Seth. He, again, was someone who put you at ease. I used to meet him once a month, even after I moved to Tata Press. And he kept in close touch. He was like a father figure. Every time we declared our results, he would write a letter to me congratulating us uh, for the performance that the company achieved in that period. And uh, competence-wise, he was exceptionally outstanding. Ajit Kirka was on our board when I moved into Tata Press. And uh, he was one of our most active board members, and his sheer competence shone through in our board meetings. So I can well imagine him being an excellent at what he did, meaning hotel management. So all three were outstanding in their respective fields. Yeah. And they came to be known as the Satraps, um, I remember from my youthful days. I don't know whether that's the... <laughs> right term to use, yeah. but uh, nothing detracts from the fact that they achieved a lot for their shareholders. And uh, those were times when it was difficult to do business in India, exceptionally difficult, and they achieved wonders. So two questions you, you've mentioned, uh, um, two things. It was exceptionally difficult to do business in India and they achieved wonders. So. Paint us um, a picture of those times as to why it was so difficult to do business. And then once you've done so, then tell us how is it that these three characters and other similar characters um, in uh, the Tatas those days were able to work around them and succeed as in the way they did? Well, the number of approvals required just to start a new business or uh, to diversify were legendary. 
And uh, you needed an old army of people to prepare forms, submit them, get the approval of the bureaucracy, get the blessings of the politicians. And once you did that, even selecting the state, selecting the land, etc., all that used to pose a number of challenges. So uh, each period produces its own solutions. And I think uh, all these three managers rose to the occasion and delivered their best at a time when India was in that particular uh, economic environment. Yeah, and the, the, the madness that descended upon India, uh, which most of our listeners would not know, is that India had a colonial bureaucracy. That bureaucracy was fundamentally rent-seeking and parasitic. Mm -hmm. At the lower levels, it was incorrigibly corrupt. After independence, corruption seeped upwards instead of probity seeping downwards. And this colonial rent-seeking parasitic monstrosity was entrusted the job of imposing socialism. This gave them even more powers than during colonial times. And so then they killed people through the license, permit, and quota raj, meaning that you needed permissions to produce something. If you exceeded your capacity, then you were penalized. If you produced below your capacity, then you were penalized. You ran from pillar to post. You had to grease palms. It created a black economy that was diabolical. What it also did was it led to what is pejoratively or what used to be pejoratively called the Hindu rate of growth. It had nothing to do with Hinduism. It had everything to do with socialism and colonialism and fundamentally uh, uh, an ideological political class and a rapacious bureaucracy. And to function in that environment, to start a business, particularly in manufacturing, particularly when you had to acquire land, which was a, which was a nightmare, when you had to deal with labor, which wasn't easy, and when you had to deal with so many permissions, was basically navigating a Kafkaesque night nightmare. So that is the world we are talking about. And that is the world these gentlemen operated in. And, and give us a bit of a glimpse as to what made them um, so successful, because the Tata group in those days wasn't bribing officials. They were not uh, in political favor. In fact, they were positively you know, out of favor. So what made uh, these three gentlemen, and of course, uh, the group led by JRD succeed the way it did? Well, let's not forget also that uh, managerial remuneration was strictly controlled. Of course. And the appointment of a managing director had to be approved by the central government. So which meant some bureaucrat flunky sitting in his Decided, dusty exactly. office and making people wait for hours on end. I remember that in the Tata Electric companies in the late 1980s, the managing director was drawing a remuneration of seven and a half thousand rupees mm. because that's all the government would allow. So yes, the environment was very difficult. Why did they excel? I think partly due to GRD's magnific magnificent leadership. And also all three of them, given an opportunity, rose to the occasion and delivered. I think that's the correct answer. Yeah, how did they rise? I mean, you've given us a glimpse of of um, Rusi's uh, 
extraordinary ability to connect with the lowest uh, levels of uh, employees and treating each person as special. So Rusi managed that well, and he was able to get people to pull along and work towards a common goal. What made, for instance, Darbari Seth um, special? What was the magic sauce? See, Darbari Seth was very entrepreneurial. I see. He had an acute business sense, which explained how they made a lot of money out of the soda ash factories in Gujarat. Mm. He also saw uh, the advantages of buying tea gardens when nobody else did, and that led to the birth of Tata Tea. So he was a super entrepreneur. And Ajit Kirka was excellent at hotel management. Not every good manager can run a hotel because it requires uh, an ability to run a hospitality system, which is different from any other business. Different from a steel factory. Absolutely. Yeah. And that is something that uh, Ajit managed in his time at Indian Hotels. I see. So, so much so for the three great lieutenants of JRD. What made JRD so great, apart from his magnetic personality, apart from picking good people and letting grass grow under his feet? Uh, what made JRD JRD, that we are speaking about him long after his death? His personal integrity remained unchallenged. And unimpeachable. Absolutely. And people, uh, I can remember a conversation I had with Mansingh Bhatta of Kanga and Company. We were together on one outside board. And he had told me that even Dhirubhai Ambani had tremendous respect for Mr. J.R.D. Tata. And uh, he said uh, Dhirubhai Ambani had, did not have much respect for many other businessmen. So that in itself tells you a lot about uh, J.R.D. Tata's strengths. I see. Uh, so personal integrity is one, man management is another. I'm sure there are other facets. You have a J.R.D. story. You, you met him. He was the second person, I believe, you met in the Tata group. Mm -hmm. oh, how did that meeting go? What happened in that meeting? Oh, he asked me about my career right from school, college, uh, my accountancy education in England. And uh, he, of course, I had my entire CV with him, but he ran through it. He asked me questions about my parents, my family background. He also asked me why I did not settle down in the UK. And, and what did you say to that? <laughs> and the truthful answer was I came back only because of my parents and nothing else. Mm. So... And uh, he appreciated that, I think. Mm -hmm. you know. And uh, at the end of the interview, you left uh, with a sense of happiness loyalty. Happiness, satisfaction, yeah. and great deal of respect. Uh -huh. <laughs> and you were inspired to work for him, as oh, you said. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent. So the Tata group uh, in the 80s, so the era you're talking about, um, is the period just before 
1991, when mm -hmm. India had uh, that year, the Soviet Union collapsed later in the year, uh, the first war in the Gulf, the Iraq War, or rather the Gulf War, uh, caused uh, oil prices to rise, and India had a balance of payments crisis. And India then liberalized, and that unleashed uh, a period of growth. So you, you came in just before that period. So paint us a picture of what the group was like before 1991, and how did the group change after 1991? The watershed here for the Indian economy? Well, perhaps the only thing that can be said against GRD was that maybe he should have handed over the reins uh, perhaps five years earlier. I'm nobody to judge that, but uh, this was talked about at that time. Mm. In that way, there would have been a smooth transition to the next era. So that was about if at all, he can be criticized for that. This is the only area. It was a difficult time, the succession period for the group. And I was in the midst of it all. <laughs> that is the internal side. On externally, how did you navigate this period? You go from being a socialist economy to suddenly 1991. And I remember, I was very, very young then, but there was a lot of talk that when the economy would open, then foreign players would come in and uh, groups like Tata would not be able to compete. That, of course, has not been true. How did the company navigate 1991? There are two factors here which played an important role. Most of the Tata companies were long established, solid, and had very strong balance sheets. Mm -hmm. Secondly, when India was opened up, foreign companies coming to India all of them, virtually all of them, wanted to tie up with the Tata Group, which was a recognition of the respect with which it was held even internationally. So the transition became much more simpler. And that, those two things helped tremendously. Absolutely, absolutely. Tremendously. So the, you talked about the succession being, being very difficult, and I don't... Uh, uh, want you to breach any confidences, but give us a flavor of uh, what were the difficulties uh, during that era, because you were an eyewitness to all of it. Each director at a senior level thought that he was personally the most qualified to take over from GRD. Mm -hmm. Therefore, that would create some degree of tension or friction. Mm -hmm. And the choice became clear much later. You know, uh, in his last days, of course, uh, GRD handed over the baton to Mr. Ratan Tata. I see. So uh, the picture you paint is almost uh, like a medieval court. Uh, a great emperor is ailing, and there are a number of contenders uh, for his throne. And... Uh, during that situation, generally, there's a lot of uh, uh, poisoning someone's drink or stabbing someone in the back in the dark going on. Was it a bit like that? Or? I wouldn't call it a medieval court because at the end of the day, there was a certain level of decorum and ethics I that see. permeated 
throughout the day. So it wasn't a medieval court, it was a yeah, modern I've never experienced a medieval court, so I can't answer. <laughs> no, I, I, neither have I. I'm, I'm not that old myself, but you read in the history books and you read But I would say they were difficult times. I see. You know, because each one was trying to find his own ally. Each one was trying to align correctly. Mm -hmm. And in the process, uh, of course, uh, that does create some heartburn. You know, some won, some lost. Understood. Now, we won't get into that, but um, tell us how the Tata group changed after J.R.D. left, because he was a giant, he was a colossus. And what happened uh, after his leadership, because succession of such a towering figure for any organization, whether it is in um, politics, whether it is in the military, whether it is in business, uh, is a difficult thing. See, given the fact that uh, India was opening up, there was no shortage of new opportunities for the Tata Group. The MNCs used to come from abroad and approach the Tatas first. I remember. Sonny was not in India, but when Sonny decided to come to India, the first meeting that Sonny had was with the Tatas. So it was easier for the Tatas because of their credibility, mm. their impeccable reputation. So it wasn't that difficult for them. Maybe other groups had a more trying time. I see. I see. Now, um, your own personal experience in the Tatas, you've had uh, a glorious career and why didn't you walk us through you know what did you come in to do and what did you finally end up doing in the Tata group? Well I joined as the deputy CEO of Tata Sons mm. but uh, after the reorganization I was appointed as the managing director of Tata Press. Mm -hmm. I knew nothing about printing or publishing at that time Mm -hmm. And uh, I walked into a company which had lost half its share capital in one year. Oh, dearie me. And had terrible labor problems, you know, absolutely hostile unions, etc. But uh, the tide was turning. In fact, in my first month at Tata Press. This is 1987? No, this was 1990. Oh, 1990, just uh, the year before 1991. That's it. Uh, you know, we were all senior managers were locked up in a room by the union. Can you believe this? Oh, wow. And we had. This to... is a bit like France. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my chairman was Mr. Jamshed Baba. We managed to get a the call. brother of the great nuclear scientist. That's right. Homi Jahangir Baba. And we managed to get through to him. Uh -huh. And the police was called. Mm -hmm. And the workers just dispersed only after the police threatened to shoot. It was that bad at that time. And uh, against all odds, uh, we had a very gutsy HR manager as well. And against all odds, we decided that the kingpins behind the labor strife needed to be handled very firmly. And you fired them. And after taking extensive legal advice, we fired, I think it was 12 or 14 mm. individuals, including the union leader. Wow, in and those days, that absolutely. was unprecedented. And when we fired the union leader, we were expecting the worst. 
But would you believe it? He started trembling. Oh, dear. Yes. Yeah. So he was basically a coward. Ah. You know? He was a bully. He was a thug. That's right. Yeah. And of course, I had uh, 14 years at Tata Press, which subsequently became Tata Donnelly mm. and then Tata Infimedia. Mm. We had 14 glorious years. Each year saw increasing sales, increasing profits. We had. Uh, three bonus issues and two rights issues during those 14 years. And we got into the area of yellow pages Mm. in India with conviction. Then we started direct marketing. We entered the field of publishing of magazines. You were also, Mm. I remember when I was young, I saw Tata McGraw-Hill. You were in academic publishing. No, No, that that was was a separate unit. I see. uh, Where McGraw-Hill was in command. It was limited to the publishing of McGraw-Hill titles abroad for an Indian market. And mainly student-oriented titles so that they could be priced cheaply. Understood. For Indian students. But what did you publish in Tata Press? Give us uh, the yellow pages. We were in so many cities in India. Yeah. They were an extremely profitable business. Yeah. The yellow pages, mm. uh, for those uh, who uh, don't remember those days uh, pre Google, <laughs> were, were a directory of, of uh, every city. And if you needed to look a hospital's number, if you wanted to, uh, contact the district magistrate's office, or if you wanted to contact just about anybody, um, they would be all there in alphabetical order. And you flip through the pages, just as you flip through the pages of a dictionary, and mm. you would find the relevant number. So Very much so. In fact, uh, shortly after we launched, uh, we had done the launch after taking extensive legal opinion, mm. MTNL sued us. Oh, saying blimey. that uh, you cannot publish telephone numbers. That was the prerogative only of a telephone company. Mm. We fought the case right up to the Supreme Court and won. Uh, who was your lawyer? Ah, uh, well, uh, initially it was Fali Nariman. Oh, what and, a brilliant man! Uh, and then later on, it was Mr. Chidambaram, our former financial minister. Chidambaram, yes. another bright chap. Yes, very competent. Yeah. And uh, so that much for the yellow pages. Uh, We also had a children's books uh, section, which we used to be small books where Mm. children uh, could read and paint and draw, Mm. uh, the sort of thing which takes a child half an hour to do. Mm. It was launched under the brand Touchstone. And then, of course, we had the magazines. And what were they? We started with a photography magazine, then we had a car magazine, we had a hi-fi magazine, all special interests, because mm. we were quite clear we didn't want to go into politics and news. Yeah. That wouldn't be acceptable to the group. You, you were much sharper than me. <laughs> <laughs> well. Uh, so, and, and these magazines... And in the end, yeah. actually, mm-hmm. when we were well into all this, all of a sudden, the government announced that we could not do new titles if we had any foreign equity. Uh-huh. Data Press was a listed company, and historically, it had some 6% held by some institutions in Europe. Mm. And on, that, on the basis of that law, 
we were not allowed to expand anyway in print publishing. And this law came into being in which year? I think it was the, I can't remember the exact year, but it was the year in which Midday wanted to go public. Uh So it was a quasi-political decision. Uh Aha. So basically it was uh, to cut you off at your knees. That's right. And and who was the prime minister then? Which I'm trying to place which I, government I'm was in to power. Get the right name, but uh, probably it was Mr. Singh. I'm Man. not sure though. Manmohan Singh. No, VP Singh. VP Singh. Oh, that yeah. splendid chap mm-hmm. uh, uh, from Eastern but I'm UP. I'm not sure. It could yeah. have been someone else. But, uh, but uh, there was now no point fighting that. So we decided to move into audiovisual. Uh-huh. And uh, one thing led to another. And we actually produced a film mm-hmm. with Mr. Amitabh Bachchan. And what film was that? It was titled Eth Bar. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you know, Bollywood uh, is full of stories and a lot of stories are correct. Uh, we got two timed. Our director made the same movie for the same story mm. with his girlfriend's brother. Oh, lovely. And, and released what, what, it three months ago. What, what, what was the name of that movie? I think it was called Inteha. Uh, 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 and uh, it was a total washout. Okay. But, and uh, was Amitabh Bachchan in that no, movie no, too? No, it had hardly any star cast. Okay. But uh, what it did was uh, saw the taste for our film, which it had been sold out in advance, but all of a sudden the territories reopened. Mm-hmm. And uh, the initial response to the film was very modest. Mm-hmm. So we, we panicked and sold out on all the rights, mm-hmm. but uh, we were a little too hasty because, uh, you know, uh, afterwards we learned from the guy who bought the rights that he had made three times the money that he paid us. Ah, <laughs> there you go. So, so you didn't quite succeed in the Bollywood business. No, no. Right. Although I must say, in all fairness, that uh, Mr. Bachchan was a model of professionalism, mm-hmm. etiquette, manners, excellent. Mm-hmm. He gave us absolutely no cause for complaint. All right. So he was all right. The director mm-hmm. wasn't. All right. So, so after that, after your, your uh, venture in, in, in the movie business, what did you focus on? No, at that point of time, uh, a sudden decision was taken that, uh, you know, initially... By whom? whom? uh, Sudden decision by whom? By the chairman of Tata Sons. Mm. You know, there was a McKinsey report Mm. which had identified core companies and non-core companies. Mm. And we were one of the non-core companies. I see. So the good old McKinsey boys come in. That's right. They even uh, did a report on the reorganization of the CIA. And uh, old CIA hands uh, have nothing but uh, foul uh, uh, four-letter words uh, to use when they address McKinsey. And uh, apparently, according to them, it it destroyed, in some ways, the the magic of the CIA. And and many other companies, uh, I've heard executives uh, go absolutely bananas at McKinsey. They say that a lot of these shiny, bright young things who come out of Harvard Business School or uh, Wharton or any other top school have no dirt under their fingernails and they provide inputs that 
sometimes are insightful, but often uh, are, are good on paper, but they end up destroying shareholder value. So, so, but anyway, so McKinsey got through to the Tatas as well pretty early, it seems, and and they recommended so our company was put up for sale. That and your company went. It went to a uh, uh, venture capitalist. Venture capitalist or private equity? Venture capitalist. Venture capitalist. Okay. And which they were one? more interested in our properties. Which one? Uh, ICICI Ventures. ICICI Ventures. Okay. So we thought we'd give them a chance, but mm -hmm. uh, I quit in three months. Why did you quit in three months? Because, uh, you know, all that we had uh, developed and nurtured as businesses mm. were not considered as important. More important was to cash in on the properties, you know, what uh, you could uh, call asset, asset stripping. stripping. That's yeah, it. exactly. Yeah. We said the word together. Yeah. yeah. Now, I, I did my MBA at Wharton, and uh, um, there is some value um, to private equity at times. They can bring out efficiency gains, particularly if a company is run poorly. But quite often, they're also very short termists because, or, or, or for that matter, venture capital, because they have to return money to their limited partners. And they sometimes kill the golden goose because they asset strip a company into its parts, sell it off to the market. And before you know it, a thriving business is gone. And along with that business goes value generation. Along with that goes employment. So it can be a very sad and sorry story if you basically get caught into the, in the backwash of a private equity tide. Absolutely. This is exactly what happened. The company doesn't exist today. It was run down to the bone. Uh, after I left, we started a new company uh, with the blessings of uh, the SP Group and HDFC. So, so just SP Group for foreigners. Shaparji Palanji. Shaparji Palanji, yeah. which is a big group in India. That's right. In fact, uh, one of the CEOs of Tata Sons was from that family, Cyrus. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And uh, over 150 people. <laughs> joined me in this venture. That is when and, I met uh, you, when you were running that, this venture, it. thanks to that's thanks it. to Mr. Shapurji. And uh, of course, uh, it wasn't as easy doing a new company like it was in Tata's. Lots of challenges, but it still exists today after 20 years. Mm. And still Although you're, doing, retired, still you're doing niche uh, magazines that's there. That's right, that's right. Yellow pages are history now because of the yeah. net and all that. But uh, we do magazines and e-zines. Yeah. A lot of our readership, of course, is digital now. But uh, that side has survived. Uh, a new CEO has taken over. I've retired. And life continues. <laughs> uh, on that note, uh, thank you for your time. It's been phenomenal speaking with you. A little bit of history of uh, Indian business. Uh, we'd love to have you back uh, from... Uh, Atul Singh um, uh, at FO Podcasts. It's bye for now. Thank you. <laughs>